Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. This is actually my second time recording this because the first time I um, did not make sure that my podcast microphone was plugged in and it recorded it through my computer microphone, which ended up sounding like I was yelling at you through a tin can. So I'm just going to start over again. This week's case is, it's, um, it's very terrifying for how relevant it is for everybody. Imagine it's 2 a.m. You're standing outside of a bar, you get on your phone, and you book an Uber. You stand around waiting, and finally a car pulls up. You're like, sweet, my Uber's here. You jump inside without a second thought. The car starts moving, and a few moments later, you receive a notification that your ride has been canceled because you were not up at the pickup spot, meaning this is not your Uber. You look at the driver and you start asking questions. You realize, okay, this for sure isn't my Uber and I don't even think this is an Uber driver and you have no idea whose car you're in. You try to get out, you pull on the door handle, but the doors are controlled by a child lock and they won't open. The windows won't roll down either. This car is driven by a man with no ethics, morals, or value for human life. You are trapped in this vehicle. This is what I imagine it must have been like for 21-year-old Samantha Josephson on the early morning of March 29th, 2019. We will never know exactly what happened in the vehicle. We will never know if that is how it went down or not. But the evidence discovered speaks loud enough to get justice. This is a case that reminds us all, especially women, to double check your Uber, your Didi, your Lyft, whatever rideshare app you're using. Not checking the license plate, it's something we've all most likely done. This case brought forward legislation in New Jersey to help protect anyone from this ever happening again. Samantha's family also started a campaign called hashtag what's my name. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. This week's case, it is terrifying. It is very scary, but it is very important to hear this case because at the end, I'm going to talk about the campaign, the legislation, and I'm also going to um, talk about tips for staying safe to making sure this doesn't happen to um, tips to prevent you from ever being in this situation. So this is a very compelling case because of its its relevance. Samantha Josephson's parents, they do not want her name to be forgotten. They want to make sure that what happened to their daughter never happens again. So today I will do my part to support their campaign and keep Samantha's story alive. Samantha enrolled and began her studies at the University of South Carolina exactly on her 18th birthday, which impressed me because 
she must have went straight from high school to university. And to me, that shows drive. It shows direction. It shows she had a clear image in her mind of what she wanted in life and how to get it. It would have been very exciting to be 18 on your 18th birthday, getting dropped off at university. Just, uh, it just sounds like such a great day. The University of South Carolina sounds amazing. It reminded me of all of the universities you see in American movies, wherever there's a university. It was very football-centered. They had a ton of sororities and fraternities. It was very social. They had all those Greek symbols on the outside of the large sorority and fraternity buildings. And I could just imagine it being really fun, going to football games, parties, social events, just it looked really, really fun. I could imagine her four years there probably went by very quickly. She was just having the time of her life. In 2019, the now 21-year-old Samantha was a fourth-year student at the University of South Carolina. She was actually set to graduate that year and had been offered full and partial scholarships at multiple universities where she could continue her studies in international law. Obviously, she worked hard in those four years if she was getting scholarships. She was very, very intelligent. Samantha, she wanted to be an international lawyer, and she would have become one had she got to live her life. Samantha being very intelligent, ambitious, worldly, and according to all her friends and family, her personality was caring, kind, fun, and she had a great sense of humor. It was very clear she was a good person with a big heart. Some of her friends would describe her as wild even, but not in a bad way, in more of an endearing way, which I just, I love that. I hope my friends describe me as wild <laughs> in an endearing way. Um, Samantha, she had everything going for her, including being gorgeous, stunning. I saw pictures of her and she is so beautiful. She had it all. She, you know, she would have had such a bright future. She had so much to work with. And she was making the most of her opportunities in life. She was part of the Alpha Gamma Delta, a sorority, well, in the University of South Carolina. And she was thriving. She had so many friends. She was social. Her grades were impressive. She even managed to fit in traveling to places like Barcelona, Madrid, and Paris while studying. Just a dream life. Samantha, she wasn't from South Carolina. She was born and raised in New Jersey. Um, she just uh, moved to South Carolina to the university at 18. Her parents, Seymour and Marcy, they love her so much and it's it's just really apparent that they did such a good job on the parenting front because Samantha was so well-rounded. She was successful and she was on the right track to a fruitful future. She has one younger sister named Sydney and they are very close in age, somewhere between one or two years age difference. And because of this growing up, they were always by each other's side and they had a very close relationship. This family sounds like the dream family. Like when you imagine the perfect family, this is the family I imagine. Uh, when I think of this family, I think of them on fun family vacations together. I think of them all together on holidays. Um, I just, it's just they seemed so perfect 
And I know all of this must sound like such a cliche, but the family really is amazing. Um, And Samantha, she did have so much going for her. On the evening of Thursday, March 28th in 2019, Samantha was taking part in a fun outing with her friends and housemates. She was going to be graduating in just over a month and the following year she would be going to Drexel University on a full scholarship. I could imagine they all wanted to have as much fun together as possible before parting ways. After all, she had been at USC for four years and... Now she was in her her last full month there. It would have been a very exciting but scary time for her. She had to leave the university and sorority and all the friends that she knew. But she was going off to further her education and meet new people, maybe join a new sorority. Um, And it just sounded like a very exciting time in her life. She's just completed four years of university. She's almost at the point of graduation. She's lived at USC for four years at at a sorority, so many friends. She's moving on to finish her student career and then become a lawyer. It's just beautiful. She had such a beautiful thing going on. So that night, That Thursday night, March 28th, 2019, they all headed over to a local bar called uh, Bird Dog. When I saw the sign of this establishment, I loved it because it has a literal bird dog on it. I don't know if you guys know that they're a thing, but they are. It's a breed of dog, um, sometimes referred to as a short-haired pointer. And they're the dogs that will look like a statue when they see a bird to like alert silently alert their their owner or their hunting partner because they're used for hunting and sport and they'll freeze like a statue and they'll point their nose in the direction of of a bird I just this breed of dog is just amazing this sign has absolutely nothing to do with anything it just caught my eye anybody who loves dogs might be interested in that I don't know anyways back to it back to this Thursday night if the University of South Carolina was anything like the college I went to then Thursday nights they're a typical pub night it was most likely very common in in, at this university like all universities I could imagine to go out on a Thursday Thursday evening or Thursday after classes whatever have some drinks have some fun maybe dance a bit have some laughs blow off some steam And this is what Samantha and her friends were doing at the Bird Dog Bar, which this bar is located uh, in the Five Points Entertainment District. The Five Points District, it has lots of bars. And it's very common for the USC students uh, to go there every Thursday and on weekends. It's usually packed with university kids. Sounds like a really fun place, actually. Uh, I looked it up on a map and Five Points, it's only two kilometers from the university Samantha was attending. So it's very close to the university. Uh, The university in Five Points, they are in the same town. And this town is called Columbia. And this is in South Carolina. That same Thursday night before leaving with her friends to go to the bar, she had called her father and she had asked him if she could use his credit card to book an Uber because her card wasn't working or there was something going on with her card. Even though the bar is only two kilometers from campus, Maybe it's dangerous to walk alone at night, which I completely understand, and I'm sure her father did as well. That conversation that Seymour has with Samantha, this is the last time he ever talks to her. 
That night at the bird dog, it was a classic university night out. And by 2 a.m., Samantha was ready to go home. And from what I gathered, I believe her friend stayed back a while longer. Samantha told them that she was going to catch an Uber home. It seems like the super like a super safe thing to do she told her friends what she's doing she told them she's leaving the bar she told them she's catching an uber she's being responsible she's booking this ride there's so many people out on the street so many people like the street it's a like it's well lit there's students everywhere there's even a hot dog vendor on the street and people are like lined up eating hot dogs people are dancing around frolicking in the streets It. It looked super safe. She's using a trusted app. Her and her friends even track each other's location using location sharing on their phones. And the ride, it was only two kilometers. She's only two kilometers from her home. It was just such a safe situation. And I'm sure it's a ride that Samantha had used Uber for many times in the last four years. And watching the footage of this, seeing how safe this whole situation is, it makes what happens all the more terrifying because it's like this veil and when you lift the veil it's just it's not safe it's I don't know it's like when you're watching a scary movie and it's in like kind of a wholesome scene and it seems like a really safe scene and then all of a sudden like one element changes and the whole thing turns terrifying that's what it was like watching the cctv footage so in a documentary i watched on this case uh, that a show called death in the dorms did they play the footage and i saw it again when i watched large portions of the trial online which I have linked in my in my show notes if you want to watch those. In this CCTV footage, you can see Samantha outside the bar. Like I said, there are so many other patrons on the street. It's well lit. It looks totally safe. Samantha is on her phone. She books an Uber. She is looking around for it. And at this time in the street, you can see a 2017 black Chevy Impala. Around 2.02 a.m., this car was seen going down a one-way street near the bar, then making a U-turn and driving back down the one-way street the wrong way. This car is driving up and down, up and down the road outside the bar. At 2.08 a.m., it turns around and pulls into a parking lot beside the bar. When it pulls into this parking lot and turns around, it's now facing the bar now facing Samantha. At 2.09, a silver car pulls up and Samantha thinks, oh, this is my Uber. And she approaches the vehicle and the driver must have corrected her mistake and been like, no, 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 I'm not your Uber because she walks away. So she actually tries to get into the silver car thinking it's her Uber. Whoever's in the vehicle is like, no, I'm not your Uber. And she's like, okay, cool. And she goes and stands on the sidewalk out in front of the bar again. The black Chevy Impala can see all of this happening. And after that silver car drives away, the black Impala drives up and it pulls up right in front of the bar where the silver car had just been, the car that Samantha had just tried to get into. And as this black Impala pulls up to the bar, the 
rear tire actually like jumps the curb like jumps a part of the curb like whoever's driving this car is in some kind of hurry or it's urgent get to pull it up in front of this bar they were on a mission so samantha she's sure this is her uber and she's seen on cctv jumping into the back seat and then closing the door and that car driving off this is where we can only speculate the exact details of what happened in the car. There are a few different theories that perhaps Samantha eventually knew it wasn't her Uber, but the driver said, hey, it's only two kilometers, I'll give you a ride anyways. Or he pretended he was the Uber driver. Either way, it wouldn't have taken long before Samantha realized she wasn't being driven home. And all the doors and windows in the back seat were engaged with the childproof lock feature. They were all locked. She couldn't escape. She couldn't open a door. She couldn't roll down a window. She couldn't get out. Before I go any further with what happens next, I want to start off the evening of Thursday, March 28th from the beginning again. But this time I will be using the information given in court from a man's ex-girlfriend who testified. I am going to leave her name out of this. It wasn't kept from the media or anything, but I just figure she doesn't want her name being, um, you know, really thrown in the mix here. 24-year-old Nathaniel Rowland was at this home where he was staying in, in the area. And his girlfriend at this time, she was really sick of him leaving every night. She didn't like to be alone at nighttime in the home. And this night specifically had asked him to stay home and he said he would this night she specifically remembers that this happened she said don't go out please stay home tonight and he said okay I will she had also asked him for a ride to work in the morning and he had agreed I think she had to work at seven in the morning and she's like please don't go out stay here I don't want to be alone at night and and you said you'd give me a ride to work in the morning so I don't need you going off and getting lost or whatever and he's like okay whatever as the night goes on this woman she goes to bed but before she does she checks to see if Nathaniel is still there and he was but when she woke up on the morning of Friday March 29th he was gone so she goes to bed Thursday night she wakes up Friday morning wanting to go to work her ride's not there her boyfriend's gone She was now going to be late for work, first of all, and also half of her uniform was in his car, and his car was also gone. She needed her hat. She had left it in the the back of his car, in the back rear window, and she needed that hat. She didn't have an extra hat. So she starts calling him. She starts texting him. He had two phones. She's calling and texting both phones. She gets no response. Eventually, Nathaniel shows up. And he shows up after the time she's already supposed to be at work. So this was sometime after 7 a.m. So he shows up. She was supposed to be at work already. And she was mad because she hates being late for work. She said that. She's like, I hate being late for work. And she was counting on him and he failed her. She was, she was pissed off at him. He agrees to give her a ride and she asks where her hat is. She's like, where's my hat? I left it in the back window. I need this hat for work. And he says this is a quote by the way he says it's in the country unquote she asks him why would it be in the country he responds because it had blood on it 
she asks him, well, why did it have blood on it? And he says, mind your business. <laughs> mind your business. Okay. So Nathaniel, he agrees to give his girlfriend a ride to work. But first he has to go do something and he leaves again. Then he returns 10 minutes later. He also had her work shirt. He was supposed to wash it and dry it. Um, but she said it had never been dried. It was still wet. So she had to, she eventually gets in the car when he says he's going to give her a ride. She um, organizes another hat when she gets to work from her boss and she just puts on her wet shirt in the car and she just goes to work with this wet shirt on and a missing hat and she's late when his girlfriend at the time gets into his car she notices dried blood in the car it's on the seats it's down the side of the seats it's on the center console lots of blood and there was a sheet covering the back seat so naturally she asks him why is there blood in the car and he responds mind your business this must be a thing that he says to he says a lot I don't know because he seems to say this quite a few times in this conversation he drops her off at work and he agreed to pick her up after work and he said that he was going to go clean his car that's what she told him she's like you're going to pick me up from work and he's like yep I'm going to go clean my car so she left him with her house keys so he could go back and sleep she said he looked tired they didn't talk about him being tired she was just like oh he looks rough here's my keys just pick me up after work and he agreed so it sounds like he kind of lived there but not officially it was her home that she rented not his and she was just being nice and gave him the keys. Maybe he kind of like half lived there. I'm not really sure. I didn't hear anything about it, another address that he had. At the end of her shift, uh, he's not there. She's waiting for her ride home after a long day of work, which she was late to. And he's not there again. So she gets a coworker to give her a ride home. And when she gets home, the door is locked. And she's like, what the fuck is going on here? So again, she's pissed off at Nathaniel. So she starts banging on the door. She describes it as um, banging hard like the police would. So he, she said he comes to the door wearing the same clothes that he had been wearing Thursday. He answers the door and she said he looked kind of worried, like concerned and anxious. Um. And perhaps that's because of the loud banging she was doing on the door. Maybe he thought it was the police coming to the door. She makes a comment to him. She's like, why, like, haven't you showered? I think her exact words were, why haven't you washed your ass? <laughs> Which I love. Uh, that is so funny. So she's like, why haven't you basically showered and changed your, like, what are you doing? And she said he's just looking really freaked out and he's dirty and he hasn't showered or changed his clothes. She walks, I believe it was to the back of the house. She goes outside and she sees that um, Nathaniel is cleaning his car. And she said it smelled like chlorine. So he was cleaning his car with bleach. And he was throwing out a bunch of stuff and putting it into bags and throwing it into her garbage bins. When asked if she helped to clean the car, she says no and they ask her why and she says it's not my car <laughs> it's I I really 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 liked this woman she did a lot to help push this case forward and it's it's just very clear she's a very good 
decent human being and watching her testify in court was and she's stunning absolutely gorgeous her what she was wearing I just loved it she was wearing like this blush pink blouse with like this gold necklace and she just she looked so so good so anyways they ask her like did you help clean the car she says no and it's a good thing she didn't help because the blood he was scrubbing out of his car was Samantha Josephson's so had she had helped she probably looked at the situation she's smart you know she's smart so she knows something terrible happened and if she's to help do anything with that situation then she's gonna be in the shit too she had no idea what had gone on every time she had asked him anything about it he would just tell her to mind her business that same Friday afternoon I believe it was around three or four in the afternoon of that Friday March 29th 14 hours after Samantha was picked up from the bird dog her body was discovered in a remote area near the university town I believe it was about 64 miles away and it was discovered by turkey hunters police were called and they ID'd her body using DNA because she was unrecognizable when I heard that part it it ran a chill down my spine because I was thinking what the fuck happened like why is she unrecognizable I'm going to circle back around to the evidence and the testimonies in a few moments, but now I'm going to pick up on the morning of the 29th at 2.09 a.m. when Samantha got into the back of that black Impala. So soon after Samantha gets into this car and realizes it's not her Uber, the man driving that car drove her somewhere. We don't know exactly where he drove. And he attacked her and stabbed her with a utility knife over 120 times. The coroner report read she had 20 milliliters of blood left in her body when the exam was conducted, meaning she lost almost all of the blood in her body from these stab wounds. And more than one of these stab wounds were fatal. 120 stab wounds that is horrific so the human body it contains several liters of blood which means the crime scene of where this took place would be saturated saturated in blood imagine taking four liters of anything any liquid and dumping it all out into one place that is a lot of fluid and from what I've gathered covering cases and talking about crime scenes and looking at crime scene photographs and all of this stuff I do for the podcast, blood is particularly hard to scrub away. So about four liters of blood, it's, you're going to find it. If you find the crime scene, you're going to find that blood. This was a vicious attack. Um, And it was estimated that it lasted anywhere between 10 and 20 minutes Samantha suffered stab wounds on her face, head, neck, arms, shoulder, torso, lung, legs, feet, and her hands. Most of the clustered stab wounds, so stab wounds that were really close together, like stab, 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 they were to the right side of her body. 
the hand wounds, those indicate that she fought for her life and she tried to defend herself. She was very much alive when this attack took place. Her hyoid bone was severed, which I believe indicates strangulation. The hyoid bone is like a a bone in the neck. And when strangulation occurs, it can be snapped or severed. So this could mean that after she was attacked and stabbed over 120 times because the medical examiner, the, the pathologist, he was like, yeah, typically when we count the stab wounds and we go over the 100 mark, they just start to estimate after that because there's really, he said it doesn't really uh, make a difference in their documents after 100 stab wounds but he estimated 120 so after she was stabbed over 120 times she was then strangled as she bled out these are the marks from a vicious fucking monster and I'm not so convinced this looks like the mark of a first time murderer you don't just go from zero to 120 120 times That has got to be the most stab wounds inflicted at one time on one victim that I have ever read about. This is, this is above and beyond over. This shows so much rage, so much hate. It, it it shows a monster that it takes an insane amount of energy. It takes an insane amount of just blind fucking rage. It's, it's evil is what it is. I've never heard the likes of that before. Sometime during or after this attack that was happening to Samantha on on that Friday morning, um, Samantha's roommates get home from the bird dog and they realize she's not in her bed and she hasn't been home. They tried calling her and no answer. Eventually her phone was turned off and they were worried. They, They are so worried because... They knew Samantha had left before them. So why isn't she home? Why isn't she answering her phone? And then why is it off? And then also why they can look at her location. They do location sharing. Why is her location moving away from where she lived? Like why isn't she, why, they have no idea. They don't know. They're like, oh, what the hell? She's in Rosewood, which was a town over. And then they they, they they couldn't figure it out. And they were like, what? the fuck is going on here so friday afternoon her roommates were so worried they contacted police to report her missing they also contacted samantha's boyfriend greg and he lived a couple hours away and he contacted samantha's parents um and they did not skip a beat they were in their car making the 12 hour drive that same afternoon to go look for their daughter samantha's roommates they had also called samantha's parents to tell them that they reported samantha missing everybody was moving forward very quickly to find her. Samantha and her friends, like I said, they used the location sharing with each other so they could see where each other were for safety reasons. And and when they had previously looked, when they first realized she wasn't home, they could see her phone was getting further and further away from where they lived. And when her phone turned off, so the last time they could see her location, it was in this Rosewood area. So they gave this information to police. All this is happening Friday. This is how fast everyone moved on this. I've never, I've never covered a case where things are getting done so quickly. 
It was early Friday morning. Samantha had gone missing. And by Friday afternoon, uh, a missing persons report was filed and the police were looking. A be on the lookout, a bolo, that was released to all police officers, including police officers in surrounding areas. Her family was looking. Her friends and family in the police released social media posts asking if anyone had seen her. By this time, the entire university was looking for her police had tracked down this footage from the bird dog and other footage in the area and then that afternoon samantha's body was discovered samantha's parents made it to south carolina on the saturday the 30th because it was like a 12-hour drive i'm not sure what time they made it Uh, but they were told to go right to the columbia police department And that's where they were informed their daughter's body had been discovered in the remote area called Clarendon County by turkey hunters the day before. So police, they didn't have a 100% DNA match that it was Samantha at this time. But because there was that bolo released, when the police went to look at what the turkey hunters had found, they could tell that it matched the description of the person they were looking for. And they told her her parents this, but I, I everybody knew. And they did get that DNA result back very, very quickly to confirm this. And her parents were just absolutely devastated. They were devastated. There's probably not even words strong enough to describe what they felt. Police then find out Samantha's Uber was canceled. Maybe because she used her father's credit card or maybe they had access to her Uber account. Um, But this is around the time they figured that out. Now police are wondering who the hell picked her up. And to answer that question, they turned to the CCTV footage. But unfortunately, there was no front license plate on the Impala that she had gotten into. And the footage... That's the view they had. They had the front view of it pulling in and then they could see it backing out and then it driving away. But before it can, you can see the back of it, it's, it's out of, it's out of the, the camera. So they couldn't see a license plate. From the CCTV footage though, they could get an accurate description of the vehicle. They couldn't see who was driving, but they could see exactly the make and model and color and everything of the vehicle. And they put out a bolo on that vehicle and it didn't take long before a police officer saw the vehicle matching the description and pulled it over at 2 30 a.m saturday morning this makes me wonder if the driver of the vehicle was out looking for other victims because that's around the same time almost the exact same time samantha was picked up the day before She was picked up at 2.09 a.m. Friday morning, Saturday morning, 2.30 a.m. The police are stopping this vehicle out driving around. So almost exactly 24 hours. When the officer pulled over the driver of the vehicle, the man took off running on foot and the police had to chase him down. And I could see the uh, body cams from the police officers and this was like a full-on chase it was hectic when they caught up with the man and they had him detained the man he refused to give id but eventually he was fingerprinted and he was id'd as nathaniel roland so they must have had his fingerprints on file already and the reason they were able to arrest him well i mean he fled the scene so obviously why is he running um but police they search his car and they find drugs and dried blood 
all over the seats. It didn't say what kind of drugs they found in the car. It just said narcotics. So I don't know. Um, but the, the blood was, <laughs> it was very apparent that the vehicle was covered in it. He may have attempted to clean it up, but he did a terrible fucking job. I can't even imagine what he cleaned. I saw pictures and I have no idea what the fuck he was doing with that bleach because that car was covered in blood in very obvious areas. I'm talking even on like the plastic bits of the interior of the car, something that would have been so easy to wipe away. So what did he do with that bottle of bleach? Because I just couldn't understand what he had cleaned. How did he miss on plastic, like the seats, fabric, that's going to be really hard to clean, but plastic bits that you can just wipe over. I, I, I don't know. I have no idea what the fuck he cleaned out of that car, but it, it obviously wasn't blood. So I don't know. Or maybe there was just that much blood. He missed a whole shit ton. Like what did that car look like before he cleaned it? I, I don't even want to know. Police, they noticed this blood as soon as they looked in the car. They didn't even have to look far. I think the officer just shined his light in the car and was like, oh, fuck. There's a lot of blood in here. Uh, police also discovered Samantha's cell phone in the car. That's right. Her rose gold iPhone. Her cell phone was still in his vehicle. <laughs> now, Nathaniel is sounding like a male Brenda at this point. He's actually worse than a Brenda, which is actually a good thing because it means it's going to be very easy to get a conviction. Uh, I will commend police officers here because this is just one day after the murder and they have already found the car. They've located this car. They found the driver. They found buckets of blood. They found Samantha's phone in the car and now they've made an arrest. Police and investigators, they did a very good job. This is incredible how much they accomplished in a, in a small window of time here. Nathaniel Rollins, he was arrested and charged with kidnapping and murder with malice of forethought. So this malice of forethought, I, this has never come up in a case I have covered before. So I don't know if it's like South Carolina's version of first degree murder, because that's what it really sounds like to me. Uh, and I have heard that this malice of this murder with malice of forethought is the highest degree of murder, which would make me believe it's equivalent to first degree murder. Police, they were able to quickly establish a DNA match from the blood in the car um, belonging to Samantha. So they could match, they matched that very, very quickly. But now they had to collect enough evidence to get him indicted. And boy, did he make their job easy. <laughs> this was... I just don't know what he was thinking. I really do not know what he was thinking. I'm glad. I'm really glad that he was bad at cleaning and had no plan whatsoever to just get away with this. He was just, it, it just blew my mind. Like I was like, is, what's happening here? So when police and, and forensics go over the vehicle, they find the seats were totally saturated in blood. They rip the seats out. They take the lining off the seats. They do all that stuff. And it was just soaked through all the material in the vehicle. It was 
saturated. Like I said, a DNA test reveals it is it is Samantha's blood. So absolutely horrific scene. One of the investigators said it was the most amount of blood she had ever seen in in a crime scene before. Police discover that Samantha's phone had been turned on again one time after she went missing. So they went to find that location. And this location was a cell phone buy, sell, trade situation, kind of like a pawn shop, I guess. And the person working there, he was like, oh yeah, um, I have cameras. Do you want to see the footage? And police were like, yeah, like we would really love to see that footage. Police, they get the surveillance footage of Nathaniel trying to sell Samantha's phone the day she was murdered to a pawn shop. But luckily, the guy working there, he wouldn't buy it. I don't know why, but the guy was like, nah, I do not want this phone. There was multiple cameras, and because of this, police could see Nathaniel drive up in the Impala. They could see him get out of the vehicle. They could see him walk in with the phone. They could see him trying to sell this phone to the guy. They could see the guy being like, I don't want your fucking phone. And then you can see Nathaniel leave again. Police can see that Nathaniel and Samantha's phone were traveling together the morning she went missing. And police can also track Nathaniel's cell phone to near the location Samantha's body was discovered in that other county, which was like 64 miles away. But we're not done yet. We are not done yet. Police bring in Nathaniel's girlfriend at the time. And she's like, oh yeah, he had blood in his car Friday morning. He cleaned it at my house that afternoon. I seen him cleaning a bloody multi-tool and all this shit. This is in my garbage bin at home. And guess what? Trash day isn't until next week. So go have yourself a look. <laughs> and she was telling them he wasn't home when I woke up. He was supposed to bring me to work. She told him all, everything. I absolutely adore this woman. She is clearly a very ethical and, and moral human being. And uh, yeah, watching her testify in court, I, it, it, I just, it made me like her even more. She was getting grilled on the stand and she remained composed the entire time. The, they are just asking her question after question and then making her repeat it. And it was, it looked like torture. Like she was put through torture doing this, um, testifying in court, but she did a really good job. Police, they go to her home and they find a literal treasure trove of evidence in that garbage. They also find that blanket that he put over the backseat of the car, which his, ex-girlfriend was telling police when she when he gave her a ride to work there was a blanket put over the car and she could see a lot of blood in the car they found that blanket and it was covered in blood and they could actually see that blanket in the pawn shop surveillance footage in his vehicle because where the vehicle was parked the camera was pointing into the parking lot and you can see a white sheet over uh, the backseat of his vehicle when he gets out to try to sell that phone. Yeah. So on the multi-tool, which is like this tool and it folds down and then you can fold it out. And then there's like different tools on it. One of those tools being like um, a knife situation, but it's like two blades. Um, and on that multi-tool that they get out of the garbage, they discover hair and blood 
on it. And that hair and blood is a is a match for um, being Samantha's hair and blood. And the way that this multi-tool looked was it was very unique. And the coroner or the medical examiner, or the pathologist, he was able to match it to the wounds on Samantha's body. The police, they discover in this garbage bin at his girlfriend's home, they discover bleach, they discover gloves, bloody towels, the literal murder weapon with Samantha's DNA on it. And they just discover so much evidence to link Nathaniel to this. The amount of evidence, it was overwhelming. But how would Nathaniel try to explain it all away? Do you think he was just going to admit to this? Well, no. He tells police the night Samantha was picked up in that vehicle matching the description of his car that he had been at a party. He drank too much, he fell asleep, and when he woke up, his keys were gone. And his car, it wasn't where he left it. That's right. He's telling police someone had borrowed his car and he has no idea where the blood came from. Yet, apparently, he had no problems cleaning up the evidence and not reporting a crime to his vehicle that was temporarily stolen. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. If I woke up and my keys were gone and I found my car parked on the next street over, and then I went to my car and then I got in my car and I was like, oh shit. And my car was covered in blood and there was like a weapon covered in blood in there. I would immediately get out and call police. Immediately. Hopefully I wouldn't even get in it. Hopefully I could just look at it and be like, fuck, what? You know, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. So it just makes you ask like, is he saying, did this person who temporarily stole his car have his phone did this person uh tell him that his girlfriend's hat was in the country because it had blood on it like there's just it's it just doesn't make sense his story just doesn't track he he must think that investigators are pretty stupid to try to do this there's just too much pointing directly at him for this to ever hold up it is just such a flimsy it's just a flimsy alibi I mean I I don't think I've ever heard such a flimsy alibi it's it's clearly bullshit so and police they knew it was Nathaniel because they could literally track his phone to where the turkey hunters found Samantha's body they could see Samantha and Nathaniel's phones were traveling together the night she went missing they found her DNA on his clothing they saw him on CCTV trying to pawn her phone they found the knife that was used that was very unique because the blades crossed over they found that same knife in Nathaniel's girlfriend's garbage bin where Nathaniel cleaned his car out and it matched the wounds. There was just so much evidence. The trial, the, this trial, it was totally broadcasted. It was all filmed. And I have linked some parts of it in my show notes, which I found this rare. It's not too often I find whole trials that I can go back and watch. I don't usually find that much of a trial online. So I watched quite, quite a bit of it. And the prosecutors, 
they did a really, really good job because they had a lot to work with. The pathologist who conducted the autopsy on Samantha's body was brought in and he gave a chilling overview of the injuries and the wounds on her body. The turkey hunter who found Samantha's body, he was brought in. Um, Nathaniel's ex-girlfriend was brought in. All the CCTV evidence was brought forward. The phone's locations, uh, pictures of the bloody car, the murder weapon, everything. Everything was brought forward. And still, Nathaniel maintained his innocence throughout the trial until the end. And I, I believe he still is maintaining his innocence. That's why we never know exactly what went down in that car because he says he's innocent and he didn't do it. The trial, it was delayed a lot because of COVID, but still um, quite quickly, you know, this seemed to, it was delayed a lot, but I feel like um, it moved along quite quickly because by July 27th, 2021, which is less than two years after the murder, Nathaniel Rollins, he was found guilty of murder, kidnapping, and possession of a weapon during a violent crime. Before the judge hands down the sentencing, Nathaniel is allowed to address the judge. When asked if he would like to say anything, he does. And this is what he says. Quote, Your Honor, I know I'm innocent, but I guess what I know, what I think, doesn't really matter. I just wish the state would have done more finding out who the actual person was instead of being satisfied with detaining me and proving my guilt. I feel like if they would have done further research in certain areas, um... That's all your honor, unquote. <laughs> so, I felt like he never finished his thought there because he says, I feel like if they would have done further research in certain areas, and then he actually like pauses and says, um, that's all your honor. So maybe it's because he had a flashback of all the evidence being pumped into the courtroom over the entire trial and he just gave up on his lie halfway through. Maybe he was like, you know what? <sighs> You've already found me guilty. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to finish my lie now. I'm over it. I don't know. That's what it kind of felt like. The judge describes the amount of evidence brought forward against Nathaniel as an avalanche of evidence. That's the exact word the judge uses to describe it, an avalanche of evidence. And that it's, quote, so overwhelming, unquote. He also says, and this is a, a quote, there were a thousand roads and each road led to you. There's a thousand trails and each trail led to you. All of the evidence, every speck of the evidence, not simply beyond a reasonable doubt, but as high of standards as the law requires, all points to your guilt. And I'm absolutely satisfied. The judge then goes on to say, I have dealt with the heartless and you fit into that category. A person without any remorse whatsoever. A person who is totally emotionless. In the law, we call it a depraved heart. And it would be absolutely astonishing and amazing to me for the truth to be that you have engaged in this activity all of a sudden. Unquote. This is what I was thinking as well. Judging by the way Nathaniel carried out this murder and the way he inflicted death upon Samantha, it just doesn't seem like where he started. It doesn't seem like this is the first time he's done this. And to truly know the answer to that, we, we will never know. We will never know. Just before handing down the sentence to Nathaniel, the judge says that 
the sentencing in this case is easy, though painful it may be. Uh, then the judge gives Nathaniel Rowland a life sentence for murder, and any other charges may run concurrently. And I don't even hate that this is the situation right now because when this judge says life, he means life. And even make sure to tell Nathaniel it is for the remaining days of Nathaniel's natural life. Life means Nathaniel's entire life now. Nathaniel Rollins will never be released from prison alive. He is not leaving prison alive. What was the motive in this case, though? There was no sexual motive here. There was no sexual assault evidence ever mentioned or determined. So why did Nathaniel Rollins murder Samantha Josephson? No motive was ever made clear. She didn't have anything of great value to steal. This wasn't a robbery. The only thing was her phone, which he couldn't even sell. And even if he could, how much are you going to get for that? You would literally make more money actually being an Uber driver. Was this just bloodlust? The fact here is that there was never any clear motive. And that just makes this case all the more haunting. Because we can't even try to understand what led him to do such a violent and brutal act on an innocent human being. We can't even point to something and say, this is what motivated this crime. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Because think about that. What does he just drive around looking for people to murder for fun? Uh, Yeah, it's that was just this extra layer of haunting to this why did he do it why would anybody ever do that why to end this episode I want to end it on a positive and I want to talk about how Samantha's parents Seymour and Marcy carried on their daughter's legacy and how they refused to let this case be forgotten they wanted to make sure they could do as much as they could to try to prevent this situation from ever happening again. So they pushed to pass a law, and this passed in New Jersey. Uh, I, I didn't hear if it passed in South Carolina or not where the crime took place, but New Jersey is where her parents live and it's where Samantha's from. And this law that was passed is that Uber drivers need to have a QR code on the window of the vehicle. And before anyone accepting a ride can get in, they the passenger who's getting into this Uber, they have to scan this code on the app to ensure it is the correct Uber. And um, that is now required by law in New Jersey, and it's called Sammy's Law. Seymour, he ended up quitting his full-time job, and now he works full-time on the campaign they started called hashtag what's my name and I have linked the web page in my show notes and if you go to this web page the front page will read uh, this quote on March 29th 2019 our daughter Samantha Josephson a 21 year old senior at the University of South Carolina was kidnapped and murdered when she was targeted by a fake uber driver Immediately following this unfathomable tragedy, we set out to educate others on the importance of rideshare safety so that no other family would have to suffer this kind of loss. Hashtag What's My Name Foundation was established in honor of our daughter, Samantha Josephson, unquote. So the whole concept of this 
campaign is to educate people on the safety precautions one should put into place before entering a rideshare. So if you order an Uber, a Didi, a Lyft, whatever, before you get in, uh, the driver has to confirm your name. Because if they are the real ride you ordered, then they will know your name. And this is really good advice. So next time you order an Uber or whatever, and they pull up, ask who they are there for before you get in the vehicle. So you're supposed to ask, what's my name? So you, you car pulls up, you think it's your, your Uber, you open up the door, you say, oh yeah, hi, what's my name? And then they can say your name and then you say, okay, cool. And you can get in, you'll know. And if you're in New Jersey, you can scan that QR code. Uh, the information given on the website, it also says to ensure the child safety lock is off before closing your door. And this mechanism, it can be found on the side of the door when it's still open, the back doors. If that lock is engaged, then once that door is closed, it cannot be open from the inside. And if the window lock is on, you can't even roll your window down to stick your arm out and open it up. So someone could literally just trap you back there. As I was writing this, I went to look at my car <laughs> and sure enough, there it was. So I was like, well, I want to see this. Is it, is it in every car? Is this a universal thing? So I went out to my car and actually one of my doors, I thought for like the last two or three months, I thought it was broken because I, I was like cleaning it and I couldn't open it from the inside and I had the vacuum in there and I was like, what the hell is going on? And then I work with a, a couple women and so I always give them a ride to the train station <laughs> and there's like they all they all have to like if they're in the back seat they have to all get out the same door because I could never figure out why this fucking door wouldn't wouldn't open so when I was reading this web page for the um what's my name campaign it had a picture of how to like fix this child lock so I must have engaged it at one point when I was like cleaning my car or something and clicked it down and I had no idea because it's not a very noticeable thing so anyways I go out and I look at my car I open it I was like oh shit sure enough there's the switch and when I pushed it up the door could now open from the inside again I closed it and I crawled into the other side and then I opened it and for the first time in months I got my car door to open so I was like oh shit I had accidentally engaged that child lock on one of my doors and I th just thought my door was broken so hopefully that is universal and we can all make a habit to check that little black switch is in the upper position, meaning the child lock is off. So everyone remember that. Uh, and I was trying to think of an easy way to remember that. Um, if the switch is up, I can get up and out. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to work on that saying. But it's really good advice. It's really fucking good advice. And if you can remember to do that before you get into a ride share, it could help you. Like even when you're like closing the door, you don't even have to make it look obvious. You can just stick your hand on the side of the door, go look at any car and you'll see where it's located and just make sure it's up. I, I'm hoping that's universal. I'm hoping that in, in some cars it's not down and then you accidentally <laughs> lock yourself in somebody's car. Um, so I, yeah, just check that switch. Some of them have a little diagram on it that says which way is lock and, and which way isn't. But in my car, it's when that little switch is in the upright position that, um, you can open it freely from inside the vehicle. Bob Saget, rest in peace. He's actually on the What's My Name Foundation website and he's talking about Samantha's murder and he's talking about the, uh, What's My Name 
campaign and why it's so important and everything that that they do and also on this website you'll find jason alexander aka george from seinfeld he's on this webpage giving a psa as well talking about samantha's murder and this foundation and ways that people can put these safety precautions into place when using ride shares it's a nonprofit, and they even provide college scholarships as well um, they are just determined to educate everyone on rideshare safety. And I, I just, I love this. I love that they're doing this. It's so important. The Josephsons, they're doing an amazing job on this campaign. I find it inspiring that they are doing this. This family is just so incredible. They took all this pain, all this suffering, and they utilized it to push for change through programs. And now they focus on educating people on rideshare safety to protect other people's daughters, sons, mothers, sisters, brothers, everyone. They they just want to spread the safety information. And they are wanting to ensure that no other family ever has to sit across from a coroner and hear the words that shattered their hearts. They are on a mission and they are succeeding. This is why it was so important to talk about this case. Also, what I would recommend is if you're catching a rideshare alone, like do everything that the What's My Name campaign recommends, obviously, like matching the plate and asking them what your name is, who they're there to pick up. Um, But also, if you're feeling really weird about it, first of all, just don't even get in. Just call a different Uber or, you know, just abandon it if if it feels weird. Um, But... If you have to get in for whatever reason, uh, take a picture of the Uber's license plate and pretend to be on the phone and say, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sending you a picture of the car now. I should be there in X amount of time. And make sure the driver sees you take this photo and hears you talking to this person on the phone. Even if there's nobody on the phone, just hold your phone up and say, yeah, I've just sent you the picture now. This is the car I'm going to be arriving in. I'll be arriving in whatever, 15 minutes. And make it clear that someone is waiting for you, even if nobody is, even if you're going home alone and nobody's there. Don't ever tell your Uber driver that you're home alone. (laughs) Always tell them somebody is there waiting. This case, it's so compelling because of the relevance. And it is, it's so important to talk about this case, to get that conversation started so that this situation never happens again. I mean, of course, it's easier to tell people don't fucking be a fake Uber driver and murder people. That's obviously the number one thing. Um, But you know what? Some people are just evil and they're going to do this. And um, you have to just be prepared and put all these precautions into practice. I will post some pictures pertaining to this case and the hashtag what's my name campaign on the Hell No's Instagram at Hell No underscore a true crime podcast. That's her name on Instagram. That's her name on TikTok as well now. Uh, And on TikTok, I give a brief overview of each week's case that I'm covering. And then if you want to hear the full episode, then just keep streaming here wherever you're streaming from. And also please remember to follow, share, and rate the podcast as it really helps my podcast grow and it's a totally free way to support me that wraps up this week's case thanks for listening and see you next week 